I want to address a subject today that I think is of great importance for us. And I'll say, especially in this hour of our American history, but really any hour of history from the beginning of the New Covenant would be an important time, especially when we consider the background of the New Testament being written under the iron heel of the Roman Empire. Turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 3. We're going to go through a few verses, so keep your Bible open. And I'll read two verses for introduction, but God willing, we will go further than that in this message. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, says, If ye then be risen with Christ, if, then seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the earth. Well, as I said, we'll go through a few of these verses here, but I want to talk to you today about seeking things that are above. Notice if and then. If ye then be risen with Christ, and we could actually put the then before seek. If you're risen with Christ, then seek those things that are above. If you're already risen with Christ, seek that which is above. Someone has made a commentary on the first chapter, first few verses of the first chapter of Genesis. I'd like to read them to you. It says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Quickly God was faced with a class action suit for failure to file a temporary permit for the project, but was stymied with the cease and desist order for the earthly part. Then God said, Let there be light. Immediately, the officials demanded to know how the light would be made. Would there be strip mining? What about thermal pollution? God explained that the light would come from a large ball of fire. God was granted provisional permission to make light, assuming that no smoke would result from the ball of fire, and that he would obtain a building permit to conserve energy. He would have the light out half the time. God agreed and offered to call the light day and the darkness night. The officials replied that they were not interested in semantics. God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plant yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. The EPA agreed, so long as only native seed was used. Then God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. The officials pointed out that this would require approval from the Department of Game coordinated with the Heavenly Wildlife Federation and the Audubon Society. Everything was okay until God said the project would be completed in six days. The officials said it would take at least 200 days to review the applications and the impact statement. After that, there would be a public hearing. Then there would be 10 to 12 months before, and at this point, God created hell. <laughs> Having just come through our elections, we can somewhat understand this irony or this false narrative. God doesn't need anyone's permission. Also, someone has written, a surgeon says, I think the medical profession is the first profession mentioned in the Bible. God made Eve by surgically removing a rib from Adam. And then the engineer comes along and he says, no, engineering was first. Just think of the engineering job it was to create things out of chaos. Then a politician comes along and he says, that's nothing. Who do you think created the chaos? <laughs> you know, lighthearted comments, but they really have some validity to them. Yeah, who creates the chaos? Well, I think we know. There's an expression in Latin that I want you to remember, and it goes like this. Corruptissima republica, plurima leges. What it's saying, corruptissima republica plurima leges, means the more corrupt the republic is, the more laws you have to have. And that's exactly what we've seen over the years. The more corrupt our nation becomes, the laws keep multiplying. So that, for instance, with the IRS, and I've actually experienced this, to ask a question some years back, call one IRS agent, get one answer, call a second, get another answer, call a third, get another yet, because they can't even figure out that there's so many laws on the books. To state the obvious, we have become exceptionally corrupted in this world. Yet I've always felt my calling was to America, as I've explained to you. And I do love this country. And I am very concerned about what is going on. Some say, when asked the question, do you believe the country's going in the right direction? Their answer is an emphatic yes. It's going in the right direction. 
The truth of it is, from the book of Genesis till now, man has been going in the wrong direction. When Jesus said, I am the way, he really pointed to a direction that was totally opposite from the way of the world. That's why he said, the world will hate you. Or the apostle John would write, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Why? Because we're going in an opposite direction. Their values are not our values. What they set as goals, we don't set as goals, for the most part. And so, I want to share with you today what I believe is very timely, because as I review social media, and I do, all I see is just a lot of not only angst, but anger and bitterness and hatred and all types of things coming from both sides. I just make right and left. I don't know that there's been a better time for us in this generation to set our affection, and notice affection, not affections, I'll explain that, to set our affection on things above. Now I read on the social media, someone who said something I've been saying for over 30 years. He's a Christian, at least his handle says he's a Christian, but this is my thought and he echoed it. If in America, we had people whose consciences were brought into line with the word of God, meaning they'll do the right thing, we wouldn't have to be so concerned about who's ruling over us or how an election goes. You know, there's a lot of talk about elections being stolen again. And whether they are or they aren't, I can't say for certain because I don't know. Some of you know, but I don't know. I do know this. The commandment says, thou shalt not steal. I know this, that the Bible says, thou shalt not bear false witness. That's the Ten Commandments. And we go through these things. I know that if America was truly led to Christ, not to Christianity, to Christ, our elections would be different because the conscience of man would be brought into line with the word of God, which it is not now. If a state like Montana can vote on a referendum, listen to this, that a doctor is obligated to take care of an infant after it's born and to do everything that's medically appropriate and so on to save the life of that child and vote no, which they just did, then we're in serious trouble. It primarily has to do with uh, abortion, not exclusively, but primarily. So the abortion, for some reason, didn't go well, and the baby's born. And so the doctors now are not obligated to do anything to help that struggling child outside the womb. That's Montana, not New York City. New York City has its own issues, that's for sure. That's Montana. We don't ex- at least I don't expect it to come from Montana. That's what they voted for. Not everyone, of course, but I've got the majority. So now the doctor can just let the child lay there until it expires or other things, and you can just figure it out if you've studied the subject. When we reach this level, as I think I've said this to you just a few days ago at the Bible study, we are on the bottom lung of the ladder of depravity. We're talking now about infanticide. I don't know that there's been a better time in my lifetime to set my affection on things above. Though, frankly, I always did. But now, redouble my efforts. Because the text here says, If then ye be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above. So during the song service, our song leader, who did a good job, by the way, um, reminded you, just forward your life. A few years, it's not much, but let's make it a hundred. None of you will be alive, I won't be alive, my grandchildren won't be alive, my children, of course, won't be alive, and so on. And so what's really important in life? The things that we go through while we're here, or eternity, where you're going to spend it. It's always been my view for the last 45 years, the greatest thing that we could do is to set our affection on things above and live accordingly, live appropriately. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now, there's a lot in that first verse that we could accent. But I just want to share with you this truth. And I've said it before, and I've said it recently. There is no question that you're going to die. And you would say, well, if the Lord comes first, okay. I agree. Yeah, sure. But in 2,000 years, he hasn't. So people died, and you will die, and I'm going to die. And knowing that, and knowing the word, and knowing the Lord, knowing that, where is your affection today? Nothing that you have. Your family, your marriage, your home, your earnings. Look, at I've done a lot of funerals. 
I've done a lot of funerals, and to me, what is most astonishing in many cases is how much money people leave behind. They've been saving their whole life. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases. I told you the case of a man who had over a million dollars, and he was in our soup kitchen. And all of a sudden, they're dead, and the family's fighting over who's getting the money. But that's not really the issue, who fights over your estate. By the way, uh, all the stuff that's important to you, you know where it's going? In a dumpster. I just thought I'd throw that in. What is more important to set your affection on than eternity? That we're living through this world, and we're going to go through this world, but we're just passing through it, just like we're on some type of trip. Now, Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian. He was very close friends with George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the 18th century, who preached here in America. And although Benjamin Franklin, if you read his autobiography, states that Whitfield was never able to fully convince him to be born again as Jesus taught, he did have, you know, some light moments. And he wrote this epithet of his own when he was younger. Listen, the body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out, and script of its lettering and gilding lies here. Food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. That was never on his grave, just something that he wrote when he was younger, but it shows you, and this is just a little bit of advice for you. If you read people who've written a lot over a long period of years, you can see the changes in their writing as you go along, if you read certain authors. You can see uh, singers searching at one point where they're younger, then coming to some conclusions when they're older. It happens to, I won't say everybody, but it happens to quite a lot of people. But then there's Christ and there's Jesus. I find great value in thinking about my own demise, my own death. You say, that's kind of morbid. No, not really. It's helped me to keep things in perspective. It's helped me to put God first, foremost, and always, because I'm going to meet him. And with all due respect to my wife and my family, he's not going to have a big crowd around saying, what do you think? What do you think? He will judge me. And that's true of every single one of you. There'll be nobody standing there with you when you answer to Christ. Let's pray to the judgment seat of Christ and not the great white throne judgment. My point today is this. You're going to die. So what's really most important? I saw a young guy the other day posing in front of a mirror with a shirt off, bodybuilding, which I thought was a bit strange. You know, it's a public place. And I forward his life 100 years. Well, he's not going to look that way if we have to exhume his body for whatever reason. It's corrupted. Food for worms. If we don't figure this out, you're likely to do the same thing everybody else is doing, just keep spinning your wheels on things that in the end won't matter. I mean, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, but a part of it's true. If I don't make a list of things that are actually important, I mean, not only important to me, but I mean, they're actually valuable in my life, my kids are going to want to throw it in the dumpster. Look at this stupid painting. And then throw it in the dumpster. I have at least one painting that was given to me many years ago. It has the artist's original name on it, and he's a famous artist. He's in pencil. Artist proof, and he has his name there. That's the truth. At the end of this life, this is the exact scenario that's going to happen. What was important to you will not be important to your friends, your loved ones, your family. They won't know, unless you tell them. And so with that in mind, like Franklin wrote... We need to look at the ultimate conclusion of life. Solomon wrote about it in Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, after he goes through everything. Listen, this man had a thousand wives. A thousand. <laughs> a thousand. Think about it. Just think about that. A thousand wives. But the book says that they led his heart away from the Lord. And he has all the wealth. He has all the wisdom. People come from all over the world, like the Queen of Sheba. And they come to hear this man expound on life and biology and all of this stuff. And uh, all these compliments and all these things that he did, including <coughs> sacrificing babies to Molech. And at the end of his life, he's a broken, sad man. And he writes these words in Ecclesiastes 12. So let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter after he writes 11 chapters on what he did in life. All that he accomplished and all that he tried and experimented with. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every secret work into judgment. Whether it be good or whether it be evil. If you haven't figured this out. The reason that we have poor choices in our elections. Is because there is no fear of God in this land on the left or the right. 
Now, that doesn't mean everybody, but that's a general statement. There's no fear of God. Social media is basically a cesspool where people can just vomit out whatever they want and feel this is a First Amendment right, which I suppose to some degree it is, but whatever became of propriety and so on, or even intelligence. Well, we know what's going to happen to us. We know this. And then if you want to interject later or tell me during the fellowship, well, you know, Christ is coming. I know that. I know that. But I also know from studying the book and history that for 2,000 years the church has been expecting him to come, and he will come. But it may not be in my lifetime, so I'm going to die. And so I want to live my life in accordance with what I already know. I'm going to die. I'm going to give an account for my life. Do you know that? You say, yes, I know that. Then set your affection on things above, because that's eternal. There's no time in heaven. So let's look at the verse. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And here's the interesting part. It may be the salient thought in this message. He says, set your affection. Well, what is an affection? Well, an affection is different than an emotion. You see, many times we conflate the two. We bring them together and we say, affection, emotion, and it's affect, not effect, with an E. That's why you'll hear me state about a song service. That's what it is. It's a song service. People tell me, have you been to so-and-so's church? And I said, well, no. Oh, what great worship. You mean they were great musicians? They sang well? I'm not saying that they're not living right. I'm just saying that it was good music that affects your emotions. Hopefully, it affects them to the point of joy. But an affection is a choice. It's explained this way. An emotion is something that occurs within you. An affection is something you have to work at. When I say I feel strong affection towards someone, that means I've made a choice. People don't always stir your emotions in the right direction. They don't always make you people. I'm talking about people. They don't always make you happy. And here's a real newsflash. You should make a point to this one too. God doesn't always make you happy. Say, what? Oh, yeah. When he talks about the cross and the crucified life and putting away yourself and self-denial, that does not make the average individual happy. It makes them holy. And so you have to put your affection on those verses to make a choice. And so now the application is this. We cannot be always looking for something that's stimulating our emotions. The Apostle Paul is not saying put your emotions in heaven. He's saying put your affection on things above. That takes concentration, that takes paying attention, and constant choices. Thoughts come through your mind like a stream, and if you fixate on any one thing, the stream stops, the thought stream stops. But God in his word tells us to fixate, in a manner of speaking, our minds on him. That's what this means here. It's Isaiah 26.3 written in different language. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Shalom, shalom is the Hebrew. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed, fixed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And that's what's at stake here for you. Who do you trust? We hear this statement, you know, became popular over the last few years. Who's your daddy? <laughs> well, it depends. If you're talking about my earthly father, it was Raymond E. Barnett. I'm Raymond M. But I came home from school. I went to Catholic school. And we learned that day about God being our real father. My dad was come, just got home from work and he was undressing. And I went, <laughs> I went and I said to him, I said, Dad, you know, you're not my real father. <laughs> my, my dad was kind of a quick-tempered uh, individual. He said, what? <laughs> Who told you that? I was only like in the fourth grade, third grade. I said, I learned that at school today, that God's our real father. Oh, oh okay, yeah, all right. <laughs> Don't go around saying that. <laughs> Which I didn't do, I became a preacher. Oh, yeah, he was really taken back. What? <laughs> Our Father. You see, that's what we say when we talk about Christians who have died. We say they went home. They went home to be with the Lord. Great thought. That's really great. He went home to be with the Lord. As I get older, I can tell you there's very few things I appreciate more than my bed. Come a certain time at night, I can't think. I can't think well. And just to crawl there, just such a relief just to know it's there. Well, that will pale in significance to the day I leave this body and meet God. 
And I don't know how it's going to go, and the Bible doesn't indicate, but if God tells one of the angels, escort him to his new house, that's going to be someday. And I'll say the mansion that Jesus talked about, you know, in the Gospel of John, there's many mansions, and you got one, and yeah, see what I've built. Wow. That's what you have to look forward to, but only if you set your affection on those things that are above. What does your new home look like? Who knows? But if God made it, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. So affection and emotion in our parlance seems as though they're the same thing, and they're not, and you need to know that. You have to make a choice throughout the day, every day, to keep setting your affection on the things that are above, on the things that are to come for you, for me, for all of us. A trust in Christ. Set your affection there. That will help you to deal with what's going on down here a whole lot better. Because we know, and that's from the book as well, the Bible, we know that this is not our home. Hasn't been since we met Christ. And we need to invest in these things. We need to invest in the kingdom of God to keep inviting people, sharing Christ with people. Set your affections, a choice that you've got to make throughout the day. Keep your eyes on Jesus. It'll mitigate the pain. It'll mitigate the suffering. It'll mitigate the confusion, the chaos, and everything else that we sometimes find ourselves in. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, I need to explain just a little bit about the grammar of this verse here, verse 3. Ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ. We know in grammar we have the past, we have the present, we have the future. The Greek language has some nuances. I mean, we have them in English too, but a nuance called the aorist tense, of which this verse is written in the aorist tense. The aorist tense is past, but it doesn't do what the perfect tense does when it talks about a completed action. It just simply states that something took place in the past that's not going to be repeated. Aorist tense, the simple definition of it. So when it says, you are dead, it's aorist, and it means it's something that happened, it's not going to be repeated. So I said to you during the communion service that you are forgiven of all your sins because that's what the book says. Now, people will hold you accountable, or they'll bring to your remembrance your sins, and certainly Satan will, not God. Well, when it comes to forgiveness, anyway. You've been forgiven. And, well, what difference does that make? Well, we're talking about what's to come, things to come. Your home in the next world, and make no mistake about this. I read you a lighthearted comment about hell, but there's nothing lighthearted about hell. Jesus said it exists. It's good enough for me. Jesus said it exists, and that's the only thing that will prevent you from being there. And the other things that Jesus said that attend his teaching. It exists. A friend of mine just told me yesterday that his sister passed away two weeks ago. I didn't know that. She wasn't that old, in her 40s. And I didn't say anything other than my condolences. I didn't know, but in my head I'm saying, she's in eternity now, but where is she? There's only two places to go, heaven or hell. And Jesus clearly spells out how to get to heaven. I read a statement by a man whose first name is Muhammad. I never looked far enough to see, was he Islamic? Was he Christian, or non-religious? I don't know. I know he had something to do with the United Nations. But he had a good statement. And his statement was this. Or let me paraphrase it. He said, listen, let's forget about putting Christ in Christmas. Let's put Christ in Christians. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, honestly, what he believed. I don't know if he's Islamic. I don't know if he's Christian. I, I don't know. I don't know what he believes. But I said, that's a statement. And especially if he's outside the kingdom. That means he's looking and he's making observations. And we're saying, put Christ back in Christmas. Put him back in our schools. Put him back in our courtrooms. And God's saying, I want to be in you first. Yeah. That's, you know, see, if you don't know biblical history, that's why we've lost everything. We're repeating the same mistakes that ancient Israel did. When God spoke through Isaiah to, to Israel, he said, I'm the one that's destroying the temple. It's not going to be Nebuchadnezzar. I'm destroying it. Nebuchadnezzar went in, not only destroyed the temple, but he took out all the things that were precious that God said to build to Moses, through Moses. And God said, I'm taking them away. And we as Americans, American Christians, we have to realize that the one that has been violated is God. We have to not just put Christ in Christmas, we have to put Christ in Christians. We've got to make sure our priorities are straight, and I don't think there's anything that will help you to make your priorities straight every single day of your life than to set your affection on things above. 
Not just lightheartedly saying, I can't wait to get out of here. That doesn't mean your affection is there. That's a decision. Let me say it again. Emotion is something you experience. Affection is something you give, whether it's to your husband, your wife, your children, your dog, your cat. You give affection. You have to work at it. And nothing will help you better than reminding yourself of all that we have down here is temporary, temporal. Set your affection because you are dead. It's an action that is completed in past, not to be repeated. Now, if you don't know that, study it. Memorize Romans chapter 6. For those of you here that I discipled, you know that was part of the program. You memorize Romans chapter 6. You recite it perfectly. You review it again and again. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead? We are dead. Not we're going to be dead. We are dead to sin. Live any longer therein than you go through the rest of the chapter. It's something that happened. And it's not to be repeated. We're born again. And I agree with this man. I don't remember his last name, Muhammad. Let's stop arguing about putting Christ in Christmas and whatever else we were talking about politically because God's saying, I'm the one that's withdrawing these things. You see, many well-intentioned people think it's the politicians. But if you know your Bible, you'll see that it wasn't the politicians, it wasn't the kings. It was God. God said, I'm bringing my servant to take over this nation because you violated me again and again. I gave you opportunity. I sent the prophets to you, rising early, staying late. I gave it to you. You didn't change. And so now I'm taking it back. I'm taking the land back. Of course, there was promises of the covenant to be given back, which Israel has now. But still the point remains. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. You read Ephesians 6. We're fighting against principalities and powers and the rules of the darkness of this age. And ultimately, we have God sitting on the throne who is over all, who knows all. And if we don't understand that the fight that we're presently in is with God himself, until we put Christ back in Christians, our efforts are going to fail. We're going to find ourselves some false prophet will tell us how to be a success. Or like in Jeremiah's time, where the false prophets come with iron horns and you, O king, will push them back, push them back. And Jeremiah is saying, that's not true. Now he was counted not only as a false prophet, which he was the true prophet, he's counted as a traitor. You can't love your country. You can't say that to the king. But what he said was true. We have relied too much on the armor of the flesh, too much on our own history. Our fight is against God himself. But it need not be if you're already dead in Christ. Then Christ is in the Christian. And then we have hope for ourselves. We have hope for our families. We have hope for our communities. This, by the way, is my prayer. When I pray for people within my own family circle, God have mercy. God be merciful and so forth. I pray for my nation. God be merciful. We don't deserve it. Be merciful. Help us, God. Listen to what Augustine said, and this is true. No one longs for eternal, incorruptible, and immortal life unless he be wearied of this temporal, corruptible, and mortal life. I think that's true. Until you're so sick of this world, until you're just tired of it, tired of the nonsense, tired of the corruption, tired of electing corrupt individuals, tired of electing people who said they're not corrupt, and they turn corrupt, tired of electing people who promise you the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they don't deliver on one single thing. And I agree with Augustine. No one longs for eternal, incorruptible, and immortal life unless he be wearied of this temporal, corruptible, and mortal life. Until you get sick of this world and can see it for what it is, it's not likely that you're going to want to set your affection on things above because you'll keep struggling on things down here. And I always want you to understand that. I'm not talking about passivity. I'm not talking about not voting. I'm not talking about getting behind candidates. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what comes first. Matthew 6, seek the kingdom first, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek the kingdom and his righteousness. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. This is what we're looking for. Now, in 2 Peter, we read how in the last days, scoffers, mockers would appear. And they would be saying to you, to me, <laughs> all you've got to do is actually read some theology books. They'll be saying to you, you've been saying the promise of his coming for 2,000 years. He hasn't come. Where is the promise of his coming? But God put that in that book for you and for me. We're not to be moved by scoffers and mockers. I'm telling you that for me, there are so many signs. I mention this to you all the time. There are so many signs in our world of what Jesus and the apostles and prophets said to look for. It's getting difficult to comprehend it all. How close is the coming of Christ? Well, I'm not setting a date. I don't know. I know it's getting close, though. 
I know it's getting close. When Billy Graham was in his prime, 1954, he was having a crusade in England, and after a week of meetings, an old preacher went up to him, and he said, you know, this week I've heard many sermons, but only one message, which was a compliment, meaning, no matter how many sermons I have preached, the message is still the same, Jesus. 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 That's what the preacher meant. It's sad to note how many people are turning their backs on this message in this country. It's sad to note people that you love don't seem like it's really sinking in. Well, God knows the final outcome. I don't. But I know that we need to be setting our affection on things above. That means it's priority. It's knowing what is really important. And the fact that you've been born and then born again, what's really important is Jesus and the kingdom. And I would maintain, along with this statement that this other fellow made, that if we were the real deal as far as following Christ, then the country would be better off to boot. Makes sense to me. For instance, if you have Christians who won't lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery, fornication, we're going to read in a minute, oh, who they sleep with and who they don't sleep with, and all this stuff, if Christians were not doing that, we'd have good citizens. Makes sense. But since there's preachers willing to offer some kind of cheap salvation that says it doesn't matter what you do, you know, God is love. Sure, he's love, but he's also holy. And holiness is his chief attribute. For me, I'm supernaturally indifferent to what people think about me because my affection is on things above. And that I consider to be a gift, not something I worked on and just finally mastered it. A gift to set God first all the time, the God of the Bible, which... And I say this with no hesitation, has made me a good citizen. I'm not climbing in someone's window to steal their television. I'm not smashing their windshield or their windows to grab their CD player or whatever they take nowadays. In other words, if you're dedicated to Christ, you're a good citizen to boot. But for the life of me, I don't know what in the world professing Christian people are talking about, we got to do this, 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 because if we could reach people for Christ and have the Holy Spirit truly convert people, truly convert them, we'd have better citizens, we'd have better elections, we'd have better leadership. We're not fighting against man, we're fighting against God. And there it is. Look at verse 5. It tells us to mortify our members which are upon the earth. So that means your hands, your feet, your sexual organs, your eyes, your ears, your brain, anything that belongs to the flesh. It says put them to death. That's what mortify means. And what should we do? Fornication. The Greek word that underlies fornication is pornia, where we get an English word for pornography. It says put it to death. Uncleanness. Inordinate affection. Notice the word is qualified. Affection we just read. Here it says inordinate affection. Things we're looking for and working for. When God says... Don't. Stop that. Evil concupiscence, old English word, just means evil desires. Covetousness, which preachers say, this is what God's will for you is. That's what God wants for you. And the Bible says covetousness is idolatry. And if Israel never learned any lesson from the past, and they did, they learned one thing, do not worship idols. Even the ending of the epistle of John Ends abruptly as he jams on the brakes and says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Well, you're not going to fall down in front of a statue. But I share with you this Wednesday night, for the love of money is the root of all evil. I have people always writing me, they want money. Well, they don't want money. Most times I just give the praying emoji. But let me tell you this much. The God of America is the God of Kenya. He's the God of Nigeria. He's the God of Uganda. He's the God of India. He's the God of the Punjab. He's the God of the whole world. And he will supply his work when it's done his way. Amen. I believe that. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. We just named fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. A man came into my office many years ago, probably about 30 as a courtesy to someone who was in the church, they asked me what I talked to so-and-so was going through a rough time. I said, sure, yeah, sure, okay, all right. When he came through the door to my office, I don't think he had taken three steps in when he said, Pastor, I just want to let you know. I didn't know what his problem was yet, but he was already telling me he had a problem with the Bible. Now remember, I'm a pastor. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a life coach. I'm not a wellness coach. I'm a preacher. 
And he's taking steps towards my desk to sit down. And he says, I just want to let you know I have intellectual problems with the Bible. Now, this is a courtesy. I could have said, well, then we have nothing to talk about. See you. But I didn't. I said, well, if what you mean that there's certain questions in the Bible you struggle with, I said, we all do. I do. But I said, I will guarantee you that your problem is more moral than it is intellectual. Why do you think in Western society we never say, oh, Buddha, or oh, Muhammad? Yeah. It's always Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ so probed so deeply into the spirit and the conscience that this is the natural result. Jesus Christ, what's going on? Yeah, that's right. You better start calling on the name of Jesus Christ. You better make it reverent. Because he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. That's going to happen. And so this man wanted to tell me he has intellectual problems. The Bible is a deep book. Yeah, I get that. But his problem wasn't intellectual. It was moral. He wanted to keep on playing with the women and not be told not to and solve his problem. I said, I can't help you. I can't help you. And by the way, and I'll give this to you in just a second, psychology is making progress in the Bible, believe it or not. They don't acknowledge it. I think many of them don't know it, but I read enough books on a lot of subjects to know. Everything you just said and you proved with an MRI or CAT scan or whatever is in the book. Nothing that God says for you to do is bad for you. And nothing that God says for you to do is good for him. God is fine because he's God. We are not. So we're much the wiser to obey and do what God has said. Someone has made mention and mark that since the end of the Second World War, the United States and Western Europe has lived more affluently than any other generation in history. We don't have a problem that there's not enough time. We have a problem with priorities. I know. We all say I don't have enough time. Every man, every woman from the beginning of time had 24 hours. It's a question of priorities, how you spend them. It's what you do with them. That's what makes the difference. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. We read now in verse 6, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Now what, I mean, I'm talking about pulpits now. What pulpit talks about God's anger and wrath? It's rare. I won't say never, but it's rare. My grandmother had an expression that she did not like soft men. And I'm not saying men should all be the Marlboro guy up on the horse, you know, with a cigarette or John Wayne. But the Bible does say men act like men. And that's not our subject for today because you're going to think, what's a man supposed to act like? I'm not going to answer that. We'll figure it out. But we're supposed to act like men wherever we go. And here we're seeing that the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. That's what the book says. The wrath of God is coming. The thing about God's so-called anger is that it's calculated. He's telling you in advance, on such and such a day, we read in the book of the Revelation, on such and such a day, at such and such a time, my wrath is going to be poured out. He's not like you or me where we just explode. God is saying, on this day, it's all going to come to a head. I'm telling you in advance, it's all going to come to a head. And it will in America, too, if we don't wise up and turn to Christ. And so we live now in an unbelievably affluent time and for the most part, don't appreciate it. We have to be able to forsake the things that are past. This is a habit I've been developing for many years, is forgetting my past. Now, I do bring it up occasionally when I'm trying to relate to somebody, but I just forget about it. But not only the bad, I'm learning to forget even the good. You say, really? Well, I'll tell you why. Because if I'm looking backward, I can't go forward. So I may take a quick look at the good times, or maybe the bad times come to my mind too, and just keep going forward. Because I don't want to spend the rest of my life in reverie. Too many older people spend their life thinking about how it was. The way we used to be. The way we were. Well, you're not. So go forward and at least make the best time of what you've got left. That makes sense to you? Yeah. Put it all behind you. Because it says here in verse 7, there was a time when we lived in them. We don't live in them now. So verse 8 tells us some other things to put off. Anger. Well, you say, Pastor, I have a right to be angry. I may agree with you, but it's not good for you. Wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Put them all off. That belongs to the old man. Put them all off. I want to single out one thing, and that's anger. 
And I, we could talk about all of them here, but the time has run out. I've been through this with you before, so let me repeat myself for those who haven't heard me say it. Well, anger runs in my family. Not anymore, don't. My father had an angry temper. That's right. But you're going to put yours to death. But what? If we just looked at one thing, the temporal benefits, uh, the temporal damage, rather, done by anger. I have a right to be angry. Well, okay, but you're damaging your health. This comes off a website, which has nothing to do with the Bible or Christianity, and it says this, some of the short and long-term health problems that have been linked to unmanaged anger, headaches, digestive problems, like abdominal pains, insomnia, increased anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, skin problems, such as eczema, heart attacks, and I could go on. And if that was my topic today, I could really expand on that. That's what I do on the Oasis, talk about these things. There are books written today in the 90s really put forth the study of neurology, neurological phenomena, the brain, and so on. And they're finding that the brain can actually cause pain. One book out there is called Change Your Brain, Change Your Pain. And it explains neurologically the way we think affects the body. Now, I think that we can know that intuitively. In any case, God says, put it off. Look it. I'm watching the election results, and I can already feel the temperature rising. I don't know if I want to scream or spit or something. Then I remember this. Is it going to change anything? No, it will change things. It'll change me. And it's going to affect my health. And you go along. So, what I'm saying here is that God doesn't say for you to do anything that's good for him. God has never had a heart attack. Some of you have. God has never had ill health and so on and so forth. And you have. So God says, put it off. Put it off. There's a better way to handle it. And I'll tell you now, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. What are they? They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The preaching and teaching of the word is one and prayer is the other. Seems silly to certain people, but... Believe me, as we begin to pray, amazing things happen because God is moving things and touching things. Look at here along the same lines of anger. In one study, Harvard University scientists found that in healthy people, simply recalling an angry experience from their past caused a six-hour dip in levels of the antibody immunoglobulin A, the cell's first line of defense against infection. Just recalling that time... I was done wrong. Could be 20 years ago. Six hours, your immune system is now not as strong as it was. Stay in an angry mood, you're destroying your own health. Then what do we do? Pastor, you've got to pray for me. I'm getting a lot of colds lately. And if I would say to you, put away your anger, so I got a right to be angry. So just, just hang up the phone. What else can I say? You don't, if, look at, it, and I just taught on this. If you want the ends of good health, you must accept the means, and these are the means. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And what you'll find is you're enjoying the anticipation of meeting God while at the same time being a better father, a mother, husband, wife, uh, whatever. Because you'll be a good citizen and just a good person. So we read this, and I'll finish here. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The old man, the new man. I think I've told you this before. When I accepted Christ, and I was 20, well, I was 21 really officially, but I started reading the Bible before that, and I was changing. I lived, well, very close to, not directly in, but where I hung out was the largest drug neighborhood, not only in the city, I mean, in the city, but also in the country. Heroin all over the place and drugs and everything. And then everything that goes along with the whole tough guy image. But that person's dead. And so I accept Christ. I start telling the local tough guys, hey, you need Jesus. Hey, I go into the bar where I hung out. Hey, you need Jesus. A little Gideon's Bible in my pocket. You pull it out. And I had never met a Christian. Never met a Christian. It was just the work of God, a piece of his work. And a friend of mine, Vietnam vet, Bronze Star, says, uh, hey, want to go get something to eat? Sure. He was a close friend. Well, he still is a good friend, close friend. He says, you know, Ray, everybody's talking about you. I said, really? I mean, everybody used to talk about me anyway. No, they think that you've really gone off the deep end. <laughs> I said, seriously? 
I said, Joe, after all the crazy stuff that I did, everything that happened, now they think I'm crazy? It's weird, isn't it? And then I began to preach Jesus. I still hadn't been to a church, but I just knew how to read. I've been reading since I was a kid. I started dressing myself when I was about 16, 17. Um, so I'm advanced. And he says, yeah, every saying you're off the, you went off the deep end, there's something wrong. I said, no. Oh. And I began to share Jesus. And the more I shared, there was a silence that came over the room. It wasn't really silence, but it felt that way. And he says, wow, I never heard anybody talk about Jesus like that. See, that's what happens when you actually know him. When you have Christianity, you start to be, I don't like it. We have you know, all these stuff and these traditions. But when you know Jesus, and I've had that happen to me, by the way, more than once. Somebody say, I've never heard somebody speak like that. I had one that was in a service in uh, the prison. We had about four or 500 inmates that day, but all the staff was there too. The COs, the captains, white uniforms, you know, the bars, the whole thing. When I began to preach about the cross and all that, I mean, if I threw a pin, it would sound like an atomic bomb. Why? Because Jesus showed up. Because the anointing of the Holy Spirit showed up. That's what happens when you really know Jesus. And, let me, let me add this, and the opposition. It'll come from your Peter, whoever he is or she is. God forbid, Lord, you should die. Get behind me, Satan. I got work to do. Peter, I want to meet him. I want to just give him one of those kind of handshakes. I say, man, you were something else. <laughs> I'll say, oh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I read your story telling the Lord not to go to the cross. I wouldn't be here if he didn't go to the cross. I'm sorry. You know, I'll finish. What, what, you know, what is it really going to be like when we're there? I'm, I'm animating things, you know. You're you, Peter. Hey, Ray Barnett. And, uh, you know, Paul, Apostle Paul, Moses. Now, he'll be easy to identify. He's got a long white beard. <laughs> and the staff. And you say, Moses, man, I tell you. Isaiah. Jeremiah. They're all going to be there. Remember that goofy song, If There's a Rock and Roll Heaven? Yeah, well, ditch that. And start talking about the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs and the uh, even, well, Solomon, I don't know. But um, Jacob. Maybe he's still limping. Nah, that can't be. He's healing in heaven. I'll leave you with this thought. It's a heavy thought for me, but I don't know how you're going to receive it, but it was a heavy thought for me. It came to me, I was thinking about the book of Revelation this week, and the, the Bible, you understand that the Bible rests on one premise. It's not just moral code and moral things. It's the Bible's being written by God, ability to accurately say this is going to happen. It's not like it's sort of, I mean, accurately. And then I thought to myself, and I was thinking of Revelation, when God describes the details of a prophecy that hasn't happened, that means he can see it. You say, you know that, but wait a minute, hold on. But then he gives it to a prophet who doesn't quite understand, but they're, in, you know, they're writing. And it occurs to me, once again, that he has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That God being God is able to say, this is exactly how it's going to happen. I see people writing in social media about this is the new world order, this is the new world order. You don't have to be worried about the new world order. And you don't have to research it until it comes out of your brains. I've got more books in my library on eschatology than anything else. And many of them have been proven to be wrong, even from good writers. Because they try to be exact when you can't really be exact with a lot of these things. But one thing we know, Christ is going to return. So set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. And you're going to find yourself, if not happier, at least more stable. In these times in which we live, the question is, what will you do? You know what you heard, and you can review the tape if you want, but what will you do from this day on? Where will your affection, something you're giving away, your emotions you don't know, they change from minute to minute, but what will you do with your affection? That's the question. You're looking for stability, your spirit to be uplifted, looking to get out of the muck and the mire, and the wrestling match that goes on down here with people, set your affection on things above and fix your mind on God so that you who started well, finish well. And Father, we come to you today in an age that is unprecedented in history. We see a great falling away from the faith. It's been happening for a while, but it's getting worse. We see false preachers just like Jeremiah dealt with. We hear the excuses that we read about in some of Jesus' parables. We see it all. Earthquakes are on the increase. Wars are on the increase. Everything that you told us to look for, when we see these things, look up. For your redemption is drawing close. 
So we say to you today, Lord, Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And help us not to be foolish enough to put our trust in man when your book said, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. Help us, God, by your spirit and this book, the Bible, to be truly born of the spirit of God, truly born again. Others will notice not everyone's going to like it, but that's not our concern. Our concern is to meet you. And again, I remind those here today, 100 years from now, nothing that they have, body, money, house, land, nothing will be theirs. Help us, God, to live for eternity. Help us to have our eyes on eternity and set our affection on things above. Help us today, God. Pour out your spirit and we'll be good citizens and we'll do our duty as citizens. But first, you must be everything to us. You must be first. I pray for everyone who's heard this message or watched it or is going to be listening to it on radio that you can spare America from judgment to come. If we're good at following Christ, we'll be good citizens and we can change the landscape. But without you, we can do nothing. And we'll just continue with anger, frustration, bitterness, and so forth. Help us, God. And remind us, not to love you a little, love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all of our strength, and then to love one another. That's not easy. You see, to love one another, you have to place your affection. But some people disturb your emotions. I mean, why are you even here in my church? No, it's not your church. It's not mine either. It's Jesus' church. And, uh, I mean, you don't have to look around, but if you'd like to take a peek who's who's next to you, you keep reminding yourself that God forgave you, but he also forgave her and him and them. Keep that in your mind. Because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Here's my commandment. Love one another. Lord, lighten our hearts. Save our families. And help us to put Christ in the Christian. I ask you today, Lord, Father God, to remind us throughout this week to love you with everything we have, soul, spirit, strength, intellect, everything. And then to love each other because we've all been forgiven and help us never to forget that. Bless the food and our fellowship, I pray today in Jesus' name. Can you say amen with me today? Amen. Amen. Amen.